0: Investors Chronicle. Hello, and welcome back to the IC interviews. Uh, I'm Dave Baxter, and today I'm joined by Tim Creed. Tim's the head of investments for Europe at Schroders. Um, he works on a couple of investment trusts you may already be familiar with. There's the Schroder British Opportunities Trust, which launched last year, and we also have the Schroder UK Public Private Trust. Uh, that latter name may be best known to you as what was once the Woodford Patient Capital Trust, uh, which Schroeder's took over in late 2019. So Tim, thanks very much for joining. Um, we can get on, uh, a bit later into exactly how the two trusts differ, but, um, I suppose what's really interesting is they both focus on the UK. Um, but they're not limited just to listed stocks. They can also go in various ways into the unlisted space. The um, UK, of course, in the last six months or so, has been an incredibly interesting market. You've seen a lot of share price momentum. You've seen plenty of IPOs, and you've also seen lots of private equity money kind of moving around, lots of acquisitions um, and potential acquisitions. We've seen recently WM Morrison, some interesting news there. But now that we've seen all of that, and now perhaps people are um, getting a bit more wary about things like prospects for economic growth, um, where are the kind of opportunities in the UK? Um, are there kind of differences in terms of what's going on in the listed, unlisted space? And is there anywhere that you think is potentially getting a little bit overheated after such, you know, rip roaring six months or so?
1: Perfect, hello there. Well, yes, thank you for the question. So we um, we as Schroders obviously cover the whole of the investment landscape and the two trusts that I'm very closely involved in cover the public and private equity landscape. Um, so we cover, and I, my role as being head of investments for private equity is I cover all the venture capital, growth capital and private equity buyout investments in these two trusts. And I work with colleagues who focus on the public investments that go into the same trusts. So, if you look at the last uh, six months or so, we are at record highs for take privates. Um, but we're also quite interesting, we're at record highs for IPOs. Um, so, we're in a, a period where there's a lot of change going on. Now, many people are speculating what's caused that tra- change. Um, could it be Brexit? Could it be COVID? Um, it, to be honest, it could be many different topics, but what we certainly do see is there is change. And one of the views that we have, we hold dearly is that um, the private investments, so venture growth and buyouts is very interesting, and public investments is very interesting. So we don't see the world as black or white as one or the other. We see that both mm. types of ownership structure have their strengths and have their merits. And even for one company, there can be the right ownership structure at one point in time, and then the ownership structure might be right as a different ownership structure sometime later. So we believe it's really important to be able to invest across both public and private, and to be able to offer investors the opportunity to access both public and private. But you are also right, there has been a a lot of talk about what's going on, and there's certainly areas of the market where there's a bit more capital going into those segments. And so one of the phrases that we use quite frequently is capital supply and demand. Mm -hmm. Uh, We like to focus on areas where there's either insufficient capital or the right amount of capital. And we tend to avoid areas where we feel there's excess capital. Uh, And we've learned that over many, many years. If you look in the private side, this was most true in venture capital in 99, 2000. Uh, Venture capital had been really uh, attractive in the years leading up to that. That led to too much money going into venture capital in the turn of the, the century and then when there was too much money in venture capital in 2000 the return started to drop it was the same in mid and large buyout in 2007 8 and 9 when those segments were really um attractive and high performing for a number of years and then that meant that by 2008 there was a bit too much capital there and when there's too much capital there was uh, the return started to drop so we've, we've spent a lot of time and attention looking at how much capital is in different segments and i'll say that across most of the private sector So venture, growth and buyout, Uh, capital supply and demand is in uh, appropriate balance. The one area where I think you've got to be a bit careful is at the very large, uh, late stage venture end, there's a bit of danger there's too much capital there. So we're a bit underweight in late stage venture, uh, but we're an
0: active investor across the rest of the private spectrum. And how does it play out if you look at it more in terms of kind of sectors? Are there any areas where you recently have found yourself kind of, you know, focusing more closely on any areas where we think at the minute you know perhaps there is too much capital or uh, perhaps on the other side thing valuations are perhaps a bit concerning
1: so by sector um, the schroders capital private equity team focuses on five sectors mm-hmm. um, we focus on IT uh, we focus on healthcare and then consumer industrials and business services and there's probably two things I'd like to highlight the first is although i say we focus on the five sectors It really is the first two sectors, the healthcare sector and the IT sector, where we have the bulk of our capital. So about 60% of our capital is in those two sectors. And that's been a long-term dynamic. We've really liked investing in healthcare and in technology for the last 20 plus years, and they've been very attractive to us. It's obviously taken a bit of a, a step up in the last year as, or last year and a half through the world of COVID, as many other people have also joined us in those sectors. So we've had to be careful to avoid the areas within IT and healthcare where there is too much money. But those two sectors definitely remain our most interesting, and exciting sectors. There was also a couple of sectors I didn't mention. So I didn't mention oil and gas or commodities or big financial services, big banks, insurance companies, et cetera. We tend to avoid those. And that's because within the private equity and venture capital market, those kind of companies don't really exist. We also, I should say, have a very high ESG governance standard. So we don't invest in tobacco or weapons or anything like that either.
0: And I suppose when you talk about kind of tech and healthcare in the UK, that's quite um as you said, it's been very a very topical space in the last year, 18 months. Um but the UK has such an interesting relationship i suppose with the tech space in particular you have these concerns about um you know uk companies promising companies being gobbled up by kind of um foreign entities uh is there i mean how much of a problem do you view that as and is there anything you can kind of mitigate or any way you can mitigate that threat as a as an investor certainly well uh, one data point i looked. I like
1: to put forward that most people are unaware of, is that if you look at venture capital, growth capital and buyout, and you look at where most companies are sold, so kind of the exit for most venture growth and buyout, Mm. about some 90 plus percent of all exits are actually to trade buyers. So 90% of all the exits that happen within private equity are to um, either UK corporates or international corporates or to UK private equity firms or international private equity firms. So it's less than 10% of all the exits are actually IPO. Um, However, of course, it's those IPOs that get the most attention. uh, And then there's a lot of attention as to whether they IPO on a UK exchange or whether they IPO uh, primarily in the US as the most logical alternative. From our perspective, um, we like to see our companies really grow through the five to seven to 10 year ownership that we have. Mm -hmm. And then when it is time for us to exit those companies, we do like to see those companies go to a good home, a good home that is going to help continue to grow those companies. So whether it's a trade buyer or whether it's an IPO for us, as long as we see further growth for those companies, then we are happy. At the same time, uh, we as Schroders are a very large institutional investor across the UK landscape, and so we as Schroders have made a number of announcements and statements to say that we would like to see more UK companies listing on the UK exchange. And actually, our CEO Peter Harrison has been pretty vocal on this topic, uh, talking about potential changes to regulations that could happen or could be required in order to increase the likelihood of more technology companies, more healthcare companies listing in the UK.
0: I suppose it'd be interesting also to see if um, we see companies, I suppose, taking more of their own measures. Um, So, for example, one of what was, and I imagine still is, one of your prominent holdings in um, Shredder UK Public Privates, um, Oxford Nanopore, um, they've been looking at kind of like an anti-takeover structure in the upcoming IPO. So I don't know, is is that something you're kind of seeing more of, like companies being a bit more perhaps proactive and trying to, Uh, kind of keep control or you know offset some of these um, potential risks
1: so so an interesting question actually uh, as a platform as a shrodes capital private equity team we've been investing in venture and growth and buyout globally for over 20 years and so we're actually very big investors and we're very early investors in u.s venture back in the 90s and so we've had access both through our fund investments, where we invest into a venture capital fund, but also through our co-investments and direct investments. We've had access to some of the great uh, venture capital companies and great kind of stories and tech businesses that have been built up over the last 20 years, In the primarily in the US, but also across the UK and across Europe and also in, in um, Asia. And there has, in those other markets, uh, particularly in the US, it's been a, quite a long-term characteristic that there's been dual Uh, class of shares um for founders as well as for compared to other people and so that's quite a standard i would say in u.s venture capital so we're we're quite experienced at dealing with that i think it's certainly clear that they that's not so common in the uk um but it is something that we are now seeing more and more businesses look to either put in place on day when day one when they're being set up or at the time when they see that an ipo is is likely
0: and um i suppose generally um... Staying with the kind of tech and healthcare space. Um, how do you kind of deal with, you, you've you mentioned there's been a lot of focus on, on those areas from other investors. I'm always interested in how, um, investors cope with, I suppose that flood of money. Um, what, what kind of difference does it make to your due diligence? And, um, I suppose how you kind of consider things you already hold. Um, yeah, what's the impact there? So we, we believe
1: fundamentally in a bottom-up approach. So we believe fundamentally that you've got to look at the company um, and what it stands for. So you've got to look at the company itself, so its product, its positioning, its competitive landscape, etc. You've got to look at the management of that company and the board of that company. And you've got to look at the co-investors, who are, so the other people who are investing in the company. And for private investments, that's particularly important. Um, so we we cover kind of that bottom-up analysis of looking at these companies from that perspective. What we find is once you get to, if you're looking at seed stage, early stage, or kind of small, kind of the earlier rounds of venture, you tend not to see um, particularly high valuations. Where, where things start to get a bit more frothy is in the late stage venture. Uh, and this is because these companies have often had a great uh, history of success for a number of years they're starting to really make their mark externally uh, either domestic within the uk or internationally and a number of other investors try and jump on uh, try and also join these companies for us we're always keen to have other like-minded experienced investors invest alongside us in our successful business um, uh, we've had a long, as a long term phrase within the world of venture capital, which is when it talks about a piece of pie, it's better to have a small piece of a much bigger pie than trying to control the pie yourself. And so we've, we've always been very collaborative at bringing in other co-investors into the businesses that we work with. And the challenge is though, when you get into the light, late stage and there's some people who are maybe, or some firms who are maybe a bit less experienced mm-hmm. and they're coming into technology and healthcare in particular in the last couple of years. So we spend quite a lot of time working Um, with the management teams to make sure the management teams themselves also choose the right kind of co-investors in the business. Because what we like to do is um, at any stage that we invest, um, we like to hold a company for three to five to seven years. But even if we do a top-up investment in year kind of five, we do like to see that that company has got a long future ahead because even at the point that we wish to sell, we need to know that there's a great future ahead because obviously that helps the sale opportunity. So looking at the quality of co-investors is something that we're we're very careful about. Um, It does mean that we take, uh, we clearly look at valuations through that
0: journey, but if you invest into a really high quality business, a lot of the rest takes care of itself do you find um, I mean I imagine this this is something that seems to apply perhaps in both the listed and unlisted space um, particularly when it comes to kind of growth stories Um, but do you find that over recent history you've perhaps had to become a bit more relaxed about things like valuations
1: Um, no definitely not I I definitely (laughs) wouldn't say that I'd say that's uh, we we look at that very thoroughly Um, it's, it's a key part of a business Uh, I I have heard various different, and we've talked about this in our uh, investment teams and our um, our investment committee. If you're investing in a a high quality business, then does the valuation matter as much? And Mm. I say it really, it it still does matter because it determines how long you're going to hold those companies. We like to make three to five times our money on our investments. Now, clearly we don't do that on all. In some cases we do a bit worse. In many cases we do substantially better, but we really underwrite our investments to a, uh, to a perspective that they can make three to five times your money and so we wouldn't want to then invest into a company at an ultra high valuation uh, with much lower return expectations because that wouldn't fit alongside the other investments in any vehicle that we
0: do. Mm, interesting and I suppose it'd be quite um, useful just to go through um, with each of the two trusts we're discussing um, the different kinds of activity you are involved in when it comes to unlisted stocks because I suppose this is an area people are getting increasingly interested in. Um, you've seen some very good returns from spaces like private equity in the last year or so. Um, but there are obviously different, different ways to approach those um, kind of unlisted companies. Um, so how does it work in those two trusts? SUPP is a vehicle that
1: you mentioned that we took over Uh, in December 19. Um, And SBO is one we had we launched as an IPO in December 2020. So the two vehicles, uh, there's two main differences. The first difference is that SUPP is really venture and growth, whereas SBO is more growth and buyout. Um, So SUPP is venture growth and SBO Growth and buyout, and um, the second difference is that SUPP already contained a lot of companies because it was invested by a, a by another manager, and so we took it over and we knew that we would need to do a lot of changes to that portfolio. We would have to change the companies themselves. Um, we'd have to do a number of sales. We'd have to change the direction of companies before yeah. we were able to make new investments. And even now, we have made our first investment, which we're really pleased about. Our first. Uh, private investments, so we're really pleased about that. But even now, it's only going to be a couple of investments um, until we've done more sales. Whereas um, SBO, we launched as an IPO, and that meant on day one, we had the capital to make investments. And so we're actually making investments. We've made six investments in, in the private side within the last six months, as well as making a substantial number of public investments. So SUPP is, is really a vehicle that is one that we're kind of reshaping. SBO is one that really sits front and center for what we stand for.
0: Yeah. So we'll definitely get more into that portfolio activity because there's a lot of interesting stuff there. But briefly, um, for listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with those terms, um, what, how would you very briefly explain things like venture, buyout, and growth? Thank you. That's a good question, a very fair question. So, And, and actually, if you ask five
1: people, you might get 10 different definitions. Yes, so, yeah. I'll give you my definition. So venture capital – um, is normally um, very fast-growing, loss-making companies. So it might when they first started, it started in something called seed investing. And this might be one or two people who start a company with a great idea. And they'll, they'll spend months or years building out that company, starting to recruit people. But to do that, they need... Um, external capital to help them grow that company and that's venture capital so the venture capital investments you might often invest maybe um, and and acquire maybe 10 or 20 percent of a company and the entrepreneurs will keep the rest they'll often be in the tech space the companies might need three four five six rounds of funding and so those rounds are called seed stage and then series a series b series c series d series e etc and the, uh, the, the hope in many of those companies is for it to go to an IPO. Um, whereby um, for the Series A all the to Series D E, they're likely to be significantly loss-making companies and, and really kind of aiming for rapid growth. Um, growth capital um, has almost the same growth rates, but slightly slower gro- growth rates, but they're slightly more established businesses. They're normally companies that are already kind of much closer to profitability and in some cases, actually already quite profitable companies, mm-hmm. but they're companies that really need more capital in order to grow. Um, so they need to for example, one investment that we we've invested in, the company wanted to recruit an extra hundred people. And to do that is obviously quite a costly endeavor. And so they did a growth capital round, we invested into that business and then they continue to help them grow further. Um, and then the final one, the, the buyout investments, these are investments where we will generally buy the whole company. Um, we'll generally with our private equity bar- partner buy anything from kind of 60% to a hundred percent. We actually like to buy 60 or 70% so that the management team, and also employees can continue to own the company. We're a big believer in employee ownership. Hmm. And the idea of these companies is, these companies are normally going to be really profitable, really high quality companies. And, and one phrase I do like to say about private equity, a lot of people think of private equity as a potentially turnaround or potentially cutting companies up, but actually the vast majority, probably 95% of buyout investments and private equity investments are where you buy a good company and you make it great so you buy a company that is already doing really well and then you grow it even faster so that would be how i would describe venture growth and buyout
0: getting back to then um you, you start to talk a bit about what's going on in the trusts um i think a lot of people will be interested in particular in um supp given there will be give, there will be people who invested perhaps a few years ago um it's had a very kind of uh, rocky rides um given uh, given it used to be the woodford patient capital trust um as you mentioned that's kind of that's quite an interesting story because i suppose you're kind of you're managing an existing portfolio much of which will i imagine be quite illiquid quite tricky to uh, kind of shift at least in the in the kind of shorter term um what's going on there? You know, what have been the ups and downs? Um, even this year, we've perhaps seen, seen some good news and some bad news for that portfolio. Um, what are you up to now there?
1: Yes. Yeah, so SUPP, Schroeder UK Public Private Trust, is indeed quite a journey. Um you're right. So we took it over from another investment manager. Um, and it was at the time of the launch um, some years ago, one of the largest new ipos for an investment trust ever so it had quite a a a big start it was rapidly invested Um, it faced a lot of challenges um in the summer of 2019 and so and i should say this trust um is separate from the other vehicles that were run by the former manager as well so there was always a distinguishing uh, something separate about this investment trust to to the managers pre other vehicles um so the board of this investment trust actually ran a process in from June 2019 all the way through until December to find a new manager. Mm. Um, now, that was a, a very competitive process. It was a very well run process. We know of quite a number of other investment firms, both public firms as well as private equity firms, who um, completed the due diligence or went through the, the analysis and the comparison, the, the bidding process. Um, and at the end of that process, Schroeder's were selected. So, so we really, um, the reason from our perspective that we want to take it over is twofold. The first is the one I've already mentioned, which is we felt that an investment trust structure is a great structure to allow retail investors to access private equity, as, as had been proven by the fact this vehicle had, a, had launched in the first place, um, and it had a great number and volume of um, retail investors up and down the country. The second reason we took it over is, although there was a lot of problems within the portfolio, we felt that there were some interesting companies, but perhaps more importantly, we felt there were some companies that if we could move them into the right direction, they could become really interesting companies. And so a lot of people, when they ask us about what we've done, they ask us, what have we sold? What have we bought? Mm-hmm. Um, and we have done some sales and we have now done a, an investment what, our first new private investment but actually the vast majority of the work has been spent on changing the direction of the existing companies uh, and getting them to move into the right direction so one example would be a company called kymab which was a company that um not many people had much interest in when we took over the investment trust um, there was talk of a new funding round So it was a a new venture round at a significantly lower valuation than the previous funding round, which is always a bit of a negative story within venture if that happens. (laughs) And so there's a lot of negativity about that company. The company itself wanted to go for an IPO at some point in the future. And so it needed more money if that was to be the case. And so they wanted to go down this funding round. Um, Our view was um, consistent with a statement that only about 10% of companies ever actually go for the IPO. Um, our viewers, you should also always look at the trade sale path or how you can work with um, corporates. And in this case, it was a healthcare company. So it's how you could work with big pharma. So we worked really closely with the management and the rest of the board and the rest of the shareholders to try and help them um, move away from the path of a new financing round and towards the path of working with big pharma, either as some form of strategic partnership and or potentially as a sale. And um, that took a year. Uh, it it takes quite a lot of time to work with a lot, a lot of people with different views, um, both, as I say, with the management and also the board, board and also the shareholders. There were people who fully agreed with us. So we were not the lone voice, uh, but there were also people who disagreed with us. And so it spent quite a lot of time during that journey by by the summer of uh, 2020. Um, some of the other shareholders didn't like what was going on. And we actually uh, invested a further. or We bought shares, about a million pounds worth of, of shares from, from other investors um, in the kind of I'd say almost the peak of Corona time as well. It was quite a challenging time last summer. <laughs> um, and by the end of the year, that company was really have, have, was going down a successful path of partnership discussions with pharma as well as potentially trade sale. And it culminated in that company being bought um, by a large French uh, big pharma company. Mm-hmm. And we made nearly about 10 times our money on the investment that we'd made in the previous summer. And about ten times our money on the, or eight times our money, sorry, on the holding value of the company when we took it over. So in other words, we we help the company be sold for far higher valuation and be a really successful exit. Um, It's it's an exit with an earnout, so the company has to continue doing well within Sanofi, which is the French pharma company. But it was an example I think that shows that if you work with the management and with the board and with the rest of the shareholders, that the bigger the biggest way that you can create value and investment is by making sure it goes in the right direction rather than just selling the shares, uh, as as was demonstrated by the success there. Mm. And so I should say that when we did that sale, we announced the sale to the stock exchange in January this year for SUPP. And then actually only within the last few weeks, um, SUPP has received the cash from that sale. And that's enabling us to make further new
0: investments elsewhere. And you have, as you mentioned, you have made at least one new investment, haven't you? Yes, we made our first investment into a technology
1: business called Tessian. Uh, it's a really exciting, uh, fast-growing uh, security software business based in the UK um, that we think has got a very strong future ahead.
0: And what um, you mentioned is quite interesting. I suppose you you focus on the, the companies um, held in that portfolio, those, those legacy holdings. And you've had, as I said, you've had some ups and downs. You, you had a bit of a write-down with I believe names like, uh, Atom Bank and Rutherford Health earlier this year. Um, what, and how do you deal with those issues and what specifically do you try and, um, what action do you implement to try and sort of improve the prospects for those holdings?
1: Yeah, so I mean, across the whole portfolio, when we look at the SUPP portfolio and aggregate, it's often sometimes kind of two steps forward, one step back, um, because yeah. uh, we, we didn't make some of the initial investments. So we're having to move them into the right direction. Um, but the aggregate journey is definitely one of positivity and definitely one of moving in the right direction, uh, as has been shown by not just the Kymab exit, but also uh, an IPO of a company called Immunacore, which I'll, I'll get back to if we, if we wish to cover that. Um, but we do also have to face challenges um, and the write downs in Atom Bank and in Rutherford, they were two of the um, three largest companies and so when you have a write down in one of the largest companies that has a material impact on the NAV. Um, at the same time we think that those two companies are now much stronger and the valuation of those companies reflects much truer where they are. Um, we also look at valuation as that point the value of that company at that point of time But then we also factor in the topic about what we're going to do next. How is that company going to grow? And I'd say in both cases, in Rutherford and in Atom Bank, we feel that they have potentially very exciting futures ahead. Uh, Atom Bank is uh, um, the leader in in its field. It basically allows people to buy mortgages on their mobile phones. They've got a really state-of-the-art IT platform. Uh, it's um, People talk about fintech and the word fintech is quite broad. And if we were to go down that path, we can talk extensively about fintech. This is a business that has really spent its time building out its, its IT platform rather than just growing at all costs. So it's taken an unusual approach, uh, possibly a slower approach, which helps to explain uh, the, the down valuation, but at the same time, it means that the company is in a very strong position right now. So for us, it's a topic about make sure the companies are moving in the right direction uh, and spend more time on that than worrying about the valuation. I should also make sure that I state proactively that we as Schroders don't do the valuations. Uh, we can provide inputs and guidance and, dis- and thoughts about the valuations, but the valuations on the trust are done independently by another party and not by ourselves.
0: So, it sounds then like you would, perhaps even in a couple of years, a few years' time, you would, would you, broadly speaking, have a similar portfolio to what you inherited?
1: Um, no, I think we're, there will be some companies that uh, we hope that we are still owning. Uh, a company mm. like Oxford Nanopore, um, we, we think, is a really magnificent company, and we definitely want, at this stage, our expectation is to be a long-term shareholder. Um, of course, it's now some... 25 plus percent of the portfolio which is a bit large if you think about building out a diversified portfolio so maybe that um, sometime a long time after the IPO we may consider um, um, downsizing the the position slightly but that would be a reflection on our own portfolio not on the company because we we think very highly of the company Um, but there are indeed other companies that uh, we've already been through a process and we've sold um, a number of companies now um, so, the, the names of the companies, there's more than 10 companies or so that are no longer in the portfolio compared to the day that we, we took over. Um, I think what we really want to do is if you look at the portfolio, it's got quite a healthcare focus, which is something that I think we were, that was one of the reasons we were chosen to take over because we have such a healthcare presence. Um, but at the same time, although we love healthcare, this is perhaps a bit too focused on healthcare. And so most of the new investments that we'll do will be outside of the healthcare space in order to bring a bit more balance to the portfolio. And then I think you'll start to see the types of companies that we invest into, such like Certesian and many other companies of that nature.
0: Yeah, what kind of sectors would you broaden out to? Definitely technology,
1: um, possibly Mm -hmm. further into fintech. Um, and then with time, we can also go into um, both business services and consumer. Uh, I think it's unlikely to have much industrials because I mentioned that SUPP is venture and growth. Uh, in venture, you don't really see industrials. In growth, you could possibly. But I think SBO would be the one that would be more balanced across all of our five sectors. But SUPP will, will retain a much stronger focus on both healthcare and IT and then have a bit of consumer and a bit of um, business services and fintech.
0: And you mentioned, um, kind of position sizing, um, this portfolio, um, I suppose in it in the former days under Woodford has been very concentrated. Um, do you have an idea in mind of things like position sizes and broader concentration of the portfolio you would like to get to, to, to make it a bit more diversified?
1: So definitely. And I, and I should say that in both cases, um, I am one of two portfolio managers. So in SGPP, it's myself and another colleague. In SBO, it's myself and another colleague. But in both vehicles, we, so the two named portfolio managers are just two people of large teams. So we have a large public team and a large private team working on both of the trusts and therefore all the companies. So I should want to definitely proactively mention that although I'm speaking, I'm really just representing quite a large team that are working on this. And I think that's really important because the way that we operate is we're really actively involved in um, both sourcing new investments, but the way that we actively manage the companies we're involved in is a very time consuming process. And so it requires a lot of resources. So going to to what we're going to do next, uh, our philosophy is very much to build um, a position of equal sized investments. Um, So if you look at SBO, which I think is better reflective of how we think, each of the private investments that we've made so far, and we've made six, they all start off being about the same size. Um, so we, we don't take the approach of putting what's called kind of a toehold investment in many companies and then seeing where it will go. Um, instead, our approach is um, if we believe in something, we invest in it. If we don't believe in it, we don't invest in it. And so each of the investments in SBO have been the same size. In the case of um, SUPP, because there's a bit more venture and growth, there may be a bit of a broader range of investment sizes, because if we do need to make one further round of financing, we want to make sure that we reserve for it and if the company doesn't get lopsided by multiple rounds of financing.
0: Would you have a rough idea of a um, a kind of limit on position size or anything like that? I think it's unlikely that we would make a new investment that's above
1: 5% um, and definitely not above 10% of SUPP and similar ratios
0: for SBO. And with SBO, that's, um, I suppose, quite an interesting launch. Um, it, was, it was one of three, the only one of three last year that managed to get away trying to um, go with a new um, UK trust. Um, but I, what caught my eye at the time was, um you were talking about this kind of what you dubbed the once-in-a-generation opportunity to, um, I suppose, kind of capitalise on this deep need for, capital from companies both listed and unlisted in the wake of the the pandemic um is i mean is is that a theme you see as kind of long lasting or is there a point at which you would think actually we need to perhaps you know tweak what we what we focus on
1: So it certainly was an interesting time to launch. Um, We (laughs) we originally started talking about the the trust in about March or about April time last year um, with Rory Bateman, who's the global head of equities. He's my fellow portfolio manager on SBO, British Opportunities Trust. and, And he and I first started talking about it. Um, in April, as I say, it took some time for us to make sure that we really want to do it, make sure we had the appropriate teams in place or the infrastructure in place or the governance. Um, because we're as, a, as an organization like Schroeder, you can imagine that all the appropriate checks and balances need to be in place. Um, and we also want to make sure that we built out a pipeline that was really substantial. That was particularly true on the private side. Um, but it was also true on the public side. And so from day one, we felt that uh, from, from the, the point of launching, where I should say that we actually went through, a, our official launch was during the month of November. Mm-hmm. So as Boris Johnson put the country into lockdown two, um, we then started our roadshow, uh, which did actually save us quite a lot of time on, uh, cause we didn't have to travel by planes, trains, cars, and buses. We could do everything by Zoom and video conferencing, um, but we did the whole roadshow remotely. Uh, and that culminated in the launch uh, at the beginning of December 2020. But it meant we also had full pipelines ready to be implemented on day one. And this really is where the phrase that the opportunity of a lifetime came from. We, we felt that both on the public side and the private side, we had never seen as many interesting companies. Uh, and if you go back to kind of coming through the lockdown, that's quite an interesting sentence to say that we had never seen so many interesting companies because what we saw is there was really two types of companies. So disregarding the public-private, there were two types. There was the first type, which was companies who were genuinely super strong companies that went into the pandemic in a good position. um, But through their position or through their niche or their industry or their management, their, their growth accelerated far faster than anyone could have predicted during the course of 2020. So these were the companies that might have been growing at 30%, but started started growing at over 100% because of what happened. So there were companies, particularly in the healthcare and technology space. I mean, a lot of people think of um, a company like Amazon in the US, which obviously did do very well, but there were other companies in the UK that were growing at similar rates. And so we, we saw a number of really exciting companies that some of them just needed more money to basically almost deliver the growth that they were experiencing. But the second mm. type of company that we liked were companies that were formerly were, were always really, really good companies, but because of either the, where they operated or, or the industry they're in, they had struggled. Some of them had seen revenues drop off or EBITDA drop off. Some had seen clients stop, so big projects that just got stopped, as, as you can imagine, as as everyone experienced during the course of last year. But we felt that with those companies, they were doing something that meant that as they came out of the pandemic, they would come out stronger. Um, And so some of them did a bit of repositioning. Some of them were even logistics companies, believe it or not, or transport companies. But we felt that they were gonna come out of the pandemic in a stronger position. But in many cases, they needed a bit of extra money. And that was both in the private side, but it was also on the public side where there was secondary issuances being, um, being done. And so we felt that with a bit of capital, We could put more money into the first type of companies, which are super fast growing companies, but also the second type of company to help them kind of return to their former glory. Or even we like to talk about it internally as
0: going faster and better than they were previous to the pandemic. So particularly with that second group, do you think then do you have a bit more of a cyclical exposure here than you might, for example, in SUPP?
1: So we, um, it's a fair question to ask. We, we don't think so. Um, it, it's possible that at this very point of time, because SUPP is far more healthcare and um, that it's possibly the case, but what we've tried to do is invest into companies where we're very confident about its future. So I'll give one example from SBO, uh, it's a company called easy park. Um, they, they, uh, we, we actually got approval to invest in the business. Um, a year ago, so in the summer of 2020, Um, and then obviously with the pandemic, there was a few things going on. So it actually took more than a year for that company to close. Uh, and the reason that it took so long for the deal to close is because Easy Park were buying their main competitor, which is a company called Park Now, and they carved that out of bmW and Daimler so that whole, whole transaction took a year, but it also meant that we had a year of watching how that business developed through covid and so it 's a company that uh, i 'm going to make it sound very very simple it has an app to help you pay for your parking, uh, and I deliberately make it sound simple because if you think of parking, most people put coins in uh, in meters to pay for your parking uh, and then they kind of drive around the town looking for new car parking spaces and there's a number of apps out there that you can have either on your phone or in your car such as ringo or other apps that allow you to pay for your parking on your mobile phone in almost most many of these cases those apps are actually owned by easy park park now so such as ringo that's one of the apps and one of the brands that uh, easy park run and so it enables people to pay for their parking as opposed to having to on, a, on their phone instead of having to look for coins now what we did see through calendar year 2020 is the use of cars obviously stopped as people were, were locked were in lockdown but what we were able to see is and it's a company that now operates in over 2,000 cities globally um and so it's a very very um diverse business and we got to see and the company got to see um how people return to car usage through and after covid and what we also saw is interestingly, something we hadn't predicted, which is as it came through COVID, a lot of people didn't want to touch coins anymore. And so the move to digitization is a theme that we we, we liked when we invested into Park and when we took it to our investment committee, that was part of our thesis, but it became a far more dominant part of the thesis by the time that we made the investment a couple of months ago from SBO. And so what we do feel is something like that is a good example where covid and the, the the challenge of the last year has transformed some business and moved them forward by many years rather than just a kind of one year annual growth
0: mm, yes yeah on those acceleration stories um well lots to think about there um but i'm afraid um we're we're out of time um so thank you tim very much for joining today and uh thank you everyone for listening